Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and I've been actively stretching my stomach in anticipation of this weekend's LA Wine and Food Festival. Are you going, dear listener? If so, make like a fisherman and drop me a line. Joining us today on the podcast is our very own prodigal father turned television correspondent, Father Saul. If you have a Hulu subscription, a Netflix subscription, or a keen eye for billboards, you've probably seen an ad for one of David Chang's many shows recently. Saul and I are going to do a bit of a deep dive into the world of Chrissy and Dave Dine Out, his show on Hulu with Chrissy Teigen and Joel Kim Booster in which they dine at LA restaurants with celebrity friends. Yes, it's a classic LA food pod slice and dice of whether a food show is worth watching or not, but it's also a larger conversation on what makes for a good food show in general, what it means to do Los Angeles' food scene justice, and David Chang's status within pop culture at large. But first, we're going to carve up a couple of news stories that whet our appetite this week. There's a fantastic New York Times interview with 30 chefs on topics like tipping and Gen Z employees, a Grubhub lawsuit that stands to threaten the very existence of food delivery apps in California, and a lukewarm, albeit detailed, debate about the merits of tuna sandwiches. Before we get into things, I wanted to send our deepest condolences to the friends, family, and acquaintances of Jared Standing. Jared made a true mark on Los Angeles food scene as an ethically-minded butcher who advocated for no-waste practices and against abusive farming. Judging by the breadth and depth of the tributes out there, seems like we've lost a truly special individual and our heart truly goes out to all who are in mourning. On that note, I'm going to post a link in the show notes to Southern Smoke Foundation's mental health resources for food and beverage workers. It's a tough time for a lot of people out there, and I'm grateful something like that exists for the people who need it. Without further ado, let's chow down. Welcoming back to the podcast, a man who is the best in the world at what he does, a.k.a. offering uninformed opinions about things he knows nothing about. It's Father Saul. Father Saul, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. I thought you were going to be referencing my uh, world-class itinerary-making skills because even though we haven't talked for a little while on this podcast, I've been low-key pulling some strings in the background of your life. Uh, planning little trips to Palm Springs and so on and so forth, getting you birthday gifts, things of this nature. How about that? It's true. You've uh, you've been putting your powers to good. You've uh, very much made the best of them. And uh, I've got to say the itinerary you helped put together uh, for my birthday weekend in Palm Springs was epic, unparalleled, something you're very good at. How much of a hand did you have in planning the drag brunch at Booze Hounds? Oh, that was all your wife. Now, to be clear, the whole thing was was – was wife led <laughs> and i don't know if we're allowed to say her name on this podcast actually i don't know if she <laughs> likes it but, but your wife no your wife was like the genesis of everything and she just tossed me like a handful of activities and said, said hey can you can you work a little bit of magic help organize this and she just took it from there so no i'm taking i'm, I'm not trying to take too, uh, more credit than is deserved but drag brunch was all her idea and then the whole i know you did a little game right this or that mm. That was mm-hmm. all her as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, no, but also, despite how good my itinerary making skills are, also always happy to shoot an uninformed hot take from the hip. Yeah, no, it's what you're very good at. And there's going to be lots of that on the podcast today. Uh, how have you been, by the way? We've really missed you here. I've been, I've been really good, man. I've had a great February. We went to Portland, did a nice <laughs> little Portland trip. I went to a sandwich spot called Poppy Sauls. 
the most appropriate sandwich spot name of all time <laughs> for this particular podcast, had an amazing chopped cheese, did a bunch of escape rooms. And then we went to a really wonderful high-end spa in Seattle, well, really not in Seattle, in the Washington area last weekend. It's been a blast, man. I got massaged. I ate good food. I escaped from rooms. I've been killing it. I've got to say, in a lot of ways, you've never looked better. You're glowing. It looks like you've maybe <laughs> you lost You say this weight. every time. I think it's just the light. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i don't know you have like a you just like look like you've been to a spa i don't know how else yeah, to describe that, it no man i was skeptical i'm a skeptical like i'm skeptical of massages in general it's just a weird dynamic to me like paying someone to rub on your body like does not feel appealing does not sound appealing but uh-huh. damn sure. if kayla out at salish lodge did not work some magic on my calves yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loose i'm loosey-goosey man I didn't know that calves is where you carried your tension. I literally specifically asked for a calves. <laughs> it's like my most tight body part. And she was like, how about like hamstrings, quads, back? And I was like, can you just spend like an hour on my calves and feet, please? That would be ideal. Yeah, well, uh, it sounds like you very much got your money's worth. And it sounds like she's going to be needing some workers comp after that. Um, he tipped very generously. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, God bless you, uh, whoever, whatever your name was. What was her name? Kayla. 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 I feel yeah. like I shouldn't be saying her name on the podcast and no one would ever track her down. Fantastic massage if everyone, anyone's in the Seattle area. It's called a referral. It's not doxing. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of uh, relieving tension, we're going to be talking about some some topics that we have built a lot of tension around today. Uh, namely, today we're going to be doing a lot of talks about David Chang, who we have talked about on the podcast uh, before. But before that, I wanted to do a quick lightning round of newsy bits with you, Father Saw. Okay, so the New York Times today, yesterday actually, Julia Moskin of the New York Times published an article called 30 Chefs Open Up About Tipping, Gen Z Cooks, and the and You, the Customer. It's exactly what it sounds like. She talked to 30 chefs all over the country. The article is broken down category by category, and there are some LA-based chefs who get their quotes in there as well, like uh, Stephanie Izzard of Girl and the Goat, and David Chang of, you know, Momofuku, Major Domo, and all of the properties that we're going to talk about today. So, I sent you this article and immediately you were like, we have to talk about this. Why is that? I, I just think it's rare that we get such a raw perspective from the chefs themselves on topics that are really relevant both to the industry at large right now, but also to the customer experience. I think this article is a must read for someone who likes going to restaurants. Everything covered from tipping to uh, delivery uh, delivery apps, I think, and and uh, uh, the industry writ large. Um, how how a Yelp and how customers behave. I think there's there's a tendency. Yes, there's a tension I think happening right now between the growing expense of restaurants due to broader uh, cost raises happening across the economy and inflation. I guess I don't know, I'm not an economist, but I know food's getting more expensive, making customers more frustrated. But at the end of the day, I think chefs and and front and service staff and cooks bear the brunt of that frustration when it's really unfair for that to be the case. Uh, and I felt like incensed reading on on behalf of these chefs, reading some of these quotes. And if anything, I wish this article was longer and and more in depth or or like I would I would want to hear more and more. I want to hear the entire interviews from each of these 30 chefs about their experience and what they're seeing. Um, so, yeah, so this was a, this is, I thought, a really impactful article. I sent I sent it to my girlfriend whose brother does some yelping. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, he but, does more than just letterboxing. 
oh, he letterboxes, he yelps. He's got opinions, good ones often. But reading this, I was like, man, we may we may have to we may have to give old Ben a heads up. Well, I think one of the most interesting points you raised and one of the points that really stuck out to me was the part of the article where they are talking about the cost because it is so relevant also to the conversations we've had on this podcast about why so many restaurants are closing, how difficult it is to run a restaurant. And I especially love this line by Jeff Davis. He said, nobody says that a pair of Jordans are overpriced or an Hermes bag is overpriced when it costs them pennies on the dollar to produce. And that does nothing to keep you alive or have jobs in your community and a place to celebrate your birthday or anniversary. This whole like comparison Mm -hmm. of like, how much how many margins like big retail companies make on their products and we're all happy to play to pay wildly inflationary prices on those but if we see our lentils go up from nine dollars to sixteen dollars we throw a hissy fit i feel like that resonates but also i kind of I kind of like felt felt like a visceral reaction when I heard them when I heard them talk about okay you see your you see your food being charged at $25 to $30 and it feels almost like insulting to you as a customer or something I I I kind of felt that I I feel that sometimes and I wonder why why do you think why do you think it is so hard to get over that hump for some people I, I truly don't know. It's one of the best quotes of the whole piece. And, and Jeff also comes back and makes another great point about what cuisines we're willing to pay more for. How mm-hmm. Italian food, where you're just making a pasta or a side of polenta, Jeff says, at an Italian restaurant, you can charge $25 for a side of polenta. But if I charge $14 for grits, people get incensed. Mm-hmm. You joke, what's the difference between a bowl of kanji and a bowl of risotto? $20. I've, also, <laughs> I've actually heard, seen that sentiment shared elsewhere, where people are like, you know, pasta with pesto is like really cheap to make at home and you're paying 30 bucks for it. And yet something like Indian food, which actually is like really labor intensive and takes hours to make is often expected to be much cheaper just Mm -hmm. due to the perception of the food. Now, so I don't know the answer here, but I think it's a great observation from Jeff. I don't know why, why, when we see a markup on our Jordans, maybe it's, it's a difference between like a a luxury item or cuisine with perceived luxury, even that's like, that's just a brand and, and a public perception, but doesn't reflect the actual labor and cost going into it versus one that's not, but for maybe the wrong reasons. Well, it, I think it, that part of it, yeah. part of it is that like it's a tangible good that you're you're gonna hold on to. You're not just gonna consume it and it's gonna sure. be gone forever. It, you know, something like Jordan's even has like a resale value, right? So like people attach that value to it as well when they are looking at the initial price. So maybe it's better to compare food to something like an experience where right, it's like right. you know, like a concert or but then again. Concert tickets are going people, up. <laughs> I was gonna say, not too many people are complaining about the inflation on the Taylor Swift tickets if they really want to be there. Right, exactly. Exactly. No, there's something very I don't I don't know. There, there's probably like layers and layers to this. There's a, a it feels like a level of almost I mean, this is this is just generally with like service industry industry interactions, but people feel like they have the right to be, I don't know, particularly demanding or shitty when they're interacting with like a service industry versus like an entertainment experience or adventure experience. I, I, I sense whether it's fast food or grocery store clerks or, or whatever it may be. And I think there's something, yeah, I I don't know what it is. I think people seem to like to take out their frustrations on the food industry. I don't Mm -hmm. know why. Um, and, and it's not fair. And when you, especially when you hear the experiences of these chefs who are living, who like do not like it's very hard to like for example get rich when they when they're raising prices it's not so they're lining their pocket like some corporation that's like you know price gouging 
they're trying to literally make ends meet and pay their staff. And yet mm-hmm. that's the one we get the most angry about and who get bear the brunt of like, like actual, like inhumane frustration from people's behavior. It's pretty nuts. Um, and that's why I really found this to be such an affecting piece. What did you think of the whole segment about like how sensitive the Gen Z workforce is? I think this is just like a general, this is a trend that's been happening over time. Millennials are similarly, right? If you talk to my my dad who owned his own company when I was growing up, talking about millennials, he it sounded exactly the same, right? And people, I, I don't know, I don't know that this like generational divide differences and also people continually, uh, continuously understanding their worth. And the, some, there were some really interesting pointed pieces about like uh, uh, Gen Z slash like, you know, over time cycles of sort of abuse in the industry being broken. So I see no problem with that. Uh, sure, like the, you know, back in my day commentary is always a little a little funny, but I, I think it's a general trend and hopefully a good one overall um, that people are not standing for poor behavior. Now, I will at the flip side, the one thing I will say uh, that I also sort of felt was one of the chef respondents talking about how if they give someone feedback, they think they're being yelled at. Mm-hmm. I think we can get a little strong. This is not just Gen Z. I think this is true of our millennial generation as well. People need to get chill out about getting feedback it's okay there's something i see in my workplace and others that i've been a part of like there there is a dynamic where it's okay to be critical productively critical in a workplace i i I fully believe that uh it's not okay to be like abusive and yelling right and there's a big big difference between those two things and uh I, i i i do my biggest old man take might be uh you know we, we, can, we can be a little harder in, our, like in terms of how we approach and get feedback uh, in, our, in our lives. When was, when was the last time you responded uh, poorly to feedback you received? You know what, man? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. There's never been a case of it happening. I love feedback. I, I, I'm good at taking feedback. Well, actually, so I should say, in my work life, I'm good at it. In my personal life, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, what did I do wrong? I'm sorry. I'm the best. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, I feel like uh, we've covered some of this territory on Shitty yeah. Yelp Review of the Week. <laughs> now, look, speaking of uh, receiving bad feedback, and by the way, that was a great article, and we'll post it in the show notes. Do go check it out, dear listener. But uh, one of your favorite companies, Grubhub, and all of its hmm. service delivery uh, uh, compatriots, what would, would we, would we say, are being sued by L.A. County for deceptive practices. Now that means that uh, their advertised fees and what they say they do with those fees aren't exactly what is advertised on the app. So LA County is going after them. It's not the first time that a company like this has been sued. It's happened in other states as well. The most interesting part of this article to me, because this is seems like the kind of obvious thing that would happen, but the most interesting thing to me is the effect right, of what this could mean. One of the things that the uh, LA Times piece on this whole situation said is that it, it kind of raises the question about whether this business model is sustainable in California long term, and it predicts that maybe some of these companies could end up leaving the state in the long term. And if you think that's outlandish, it's really not. We're seeing that happen with the insurance industry right now in California, right? Because of legislation and because of how hard it is to actually insure things profitably in California due to like wildfires and other things like that, a lot of these insurance companies are leaving the state. Could we see that happen with these delivery apps? And would that be such a bad thing? Yeah, it's it's a great point. I, I assume we could, right? I, I don't know what the economics was like for the business. For the record, Back in my delivery days, I was a DoorDash a DoorDash order, never Grubhub. 
And I say back in those days because if the, for loyal listeners who, who will recall our uh, New Year's episode, one of my goals this year was to cook at home much more and, and like really reduce reliance on delivery. And I've been, I will say, aside from like moments where I have to travel, right, or, or like, uh, like I haven't had a chance to do grocery shopping, we've really done that yeah. uh, in my house. And it's so much better. Like it's so it's so much better. It's not even funny. Like in every way. Like um, uh, and and so no, I don't think delivery companies leaving would be a bad thing. I understand too that look, the trade off you'd say is uh, delivery has become a reliable income stream for restaurants, right? And you do. I mean, like we just read the article about how tight the margins are. However, there is like a lot of questions I have about what the actual cost benefit is for participating restaurants uh, in general. It's certainly, something we hear about a lot about the you know the fees that restaurants have to pay to participate and whether or not they get boosted within the app. I, I am not. And also on top of that, like the actual livelihoods of delivery drivers in Seattle, for example, they recently put a, a minimum wage for all delivery drivers. And in response, DoorDash and others put a $5 additional charge on top of every uh, uh, delivery, um, hmm. which is causing a lot of strife because people had not have naturally now like reduced the amount they're, buying using the apps because a single coffee if you were to order one it's like 26 bucks of course it would only be 21 so it'll be 21 beforehand but uh now drivers are you know mobilized by the delivery companies angry that this charge is being uh being levied against them and therefore they're getting less business um people are ordering less because it's so expensive at the end of the day though were we very happy with the employment status of drivers who are independent contractors and uh, in most states and not able to get health insurance or a career mm-hmm. path. Like, look, I, it's always painful when, when something turns over, but no, I would not, I will not miss Grubhub or DoorDash if they leave. And I got to say on a personal level, like everything from money to health, it's just a way better choice. And and for restaurants, right. When we actually patronize restaurants and go there directly, it yeah. seems like way healthier. I think if it's gone, something better will just come in its stead because like, Delivery has been a thing way before delivery yeah. app. Like yeah. restaurants were delivering, you know, pizza deliveries were were probably probably the most like famous example of this. Uh, so much so that it even inspired its own category of numerous different things. But um, uh, what what I mean is like something else will pop up. Whether it's whether it's restaurants that are able to investing in delivery themselves or whether it's <laughs> some sort of app that is uh legally uh like in good standing with the law but that is also maybe even better for restaurants and better for consumers like that something else will pop up so i'm not worried about it leaving although i i do i do think that just like in general it's a great question that you asked earlier which is what do how do restaurants actually feel about these delivery services from what I can tell is I feel like it's, you can't live without, with them, you can't live without them. Meaning like (laughs) you don't really benefit that much from them because they are taking such big fees. But also if you eliminate that stream of your income, margins really, really start to hurt. So that would be my guess. Yeah. I mean, certainly during COVID, a unique circumstance, they were they were of particular value. But if you think about the actual innovation here, like a lot of the, I feel like I sense that a lot of the businesses that are on like a DoorDash or a Grubhub that were never in the delivery business to begin with, right? Who knows? Maybe like, and, and, and I don't know how the the costs of doing business for them, like if, if, if losing that stream can actually also translate into other cost savings. They were not 
Like they were forced to end up on these apps, even though delivery was or takeout was not part of the service offering because maybe it's not the ideal way to deliver the food or maybe because they didn't want to spend money on take to go boxes. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or like, you know, additional staff that might be required to fill the, the, the additional demand from delivery. Right. So, um, I, I, I think the sooner the, the real, like what innovation of these apps is like one, they found a way to aggregate all the restaurants and search for things in one place. And then they found a way to <laughs> very cheaply get people like pay, pay labor to do it. Right. Yeah. Taking away like the, the, the better paid probably delivery of the past and and uh, forcing restaurants maybe into a business model that they did not intend to be in in the first place. So, um, yeah, I will not miss them. Uh, good, good on LA County for uh, uh, so no, these are alleged poor business practices from Grubhub in terms of hiding fees and um, having like like shady like uh, marketing deals with certain places. Um, if that's true, we'll find out. Um, but this is this is what a city should do in in, in seeking to protect its consumers. Hey, thanks for saying the word allegedly and shielding the podcast from uh, legal trouble. I appreciate that. <laughs> Doing my best here. Good looking out. Good looking out. Well, speaking of businesses that started as delivery options only, um, uh, one of the most popular tuna sandwich destinations in Los Angeles, Carla Cafe, is finally opening up a brick and mortar on the strength of its tuna sandwich. My question for you, Saul, you are famously an advocate of the tuna sandwich. Can you convince me that tuna sandwiches are actually good and worth spending $20 on? Tuna sandwiches are, well, look, good tuna sandwiches are good, right? I took a look at this Carla's Cafe tuna sandwich on the TikTok linked in the article. I'm, I would try it, but I'm a little, it's not my vision, right? It's not, it's no <laughs> layers. Layers Green Lake, shout out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great uh, our, favorite, our favorite Seattle tuna, tuna sandwich. Uh, What's your vision of a great tuna sandwich? I mean, just take a picture of the layers sandwich. Thick toasted bread, delicious tuna salad, potato chips, key, and then some greens and mayo. That's that's a, that's a perfect sandwich. Now, and you don't have to overcomplicate it beyond that. What I saw in the picture was like a more condensed sort of sandwich. If the bread is yeah. crunchy, it could still work out. Um, but no, <laughs> shout out to those guys. And also, I want to say one more thing before we leave the delivery conversation. Sorry to jump back and forth. Shout out to Carla Cafe. There's a, uh, as we talk about these... Uh, uh, about this, the the disruption of the initially disruptive food delivery, food riot, riot app, whatever, uh, industry, the DoorDashes and Grubhubs and Uber Eats. There's a guy in Seattle who goes by Tony Delivery, who mm. after the $5 additional fee was put on in the city, started putting up flyers being like, uh, Tony Delivers, being like, hey, I'm Tony Delivers. Call this number, five bucks, I'll pick up your food. And people are doing it. Like, it's literally like there's... There, Given the cost of this service now, I like the idea that independent contractors are actually popping up to like provide an addition to provide an alternative service. Um, and who knows? Maybe that is the that there is some happy medium that works out best for the restaurant, for the for those who do delivery, and for the customer here. Because right now these organizations are not doing anyone any favors. I love this, like you know, uh, sort of like bizarro future we're painting where like people set out to be like mercenary delivery drivers just right yeah trying to like basically like outdo each other in the most outlandish ways to get to the (laughs) delivery first in order to be the person that has the quarter on the market that's like mad max (laughs) yeah yeah it's like mad max but for like rogue door dashers i would Um, say this is not an ideal outcome <laughs> no, but it could be uh, what happens in post in a post capitalist society. So, things to look out for. 
Okay. Um, speaking of capitalism doing its thing, Heritage Barbecue is opening a taco shop in the summer in Santa Ana down in Orange County. My question for you, Saul, is how much closer will you be to living in L.A. this summer? And can we do it? Should we do it as a road trip from L.A. or do I have to buy you a ticket from Seattle? Uh, I wish. I mean, yeah, you can happily buy me that ticket. I don't think uh, I, I'll still I still will be California dreaming um, as, <laughs> as we go along here. But Heritage Barbecue, I mean, I feel like we got to do a one two punch because I want to try their barbecue proper and the tacos. I feel like, by the way, our friends at Moosecraft could do something similar here, because if you remember that burnt end taco we had mm-hmm. during your year of the taco crawl, one of the very best. So barbecue taco, I'm all about it. Very excited for this one. We've also got to try Moosecraft Burger at some point. I hear that that thing is absolutely yeah. spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time I go, I look at the burger and I'm like, I really want that, but I'm not going to be able to eat it after I crush all this brisket and, <laughs> and, and, and like pulled pork and esquitas. So, uh, yeah. I think fundamentally we've got to start going with bigger crews so that we can yeah. like actually Mix like it up. Yeah, 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 distribute. Make bigger platters. Well, speaking of burgers, last thing I want to talk to you about on Newsy Bits today is Infatuation put out its Smash Burger power rankings, which I, I love when they put out lists and they don't like, you know, pussyfoot around by not ranking them. Like, if you're going to give us a list, rank them, you know? And they ranked them. Some really interesting things. I, I tried to basically ma- tailor this question to you based on the ones that I've know- I know that you have had before. They, they say that to them, Goldberger is above the window and heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. I believe you've had all three of those. Yes. And that's the ranking, by the way. It's one Goldberger, two window, three heavy-handed. What do you think about that? I, by the way, I've also had Burgers Never Say Die, which is down at number uh, 11 on the list. Um, I, I Look, so what's weird about – there's two thoughts I have about this. One, uh, to be clear, I've only had window via delivery, shamefully. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I think the same is technically true of Goldberger. I haven't been there on site, but they, they do their own, I think, delivery service as well. But 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 more broadly, like I'm fine with these rankings because I find it so difficult to parse smash burgers. Like I'd have mm. to have them back to back to back to be like, this is over that, this is over that. Because fundamentally, the structure and experience of a smash burger, I think, is so it really is relatively similar across. Yes, there are some that are relatively thicker patties, some that are smashed all the way down and really crispy. But when it comes to the actual experience, I, when I have like a heavy handed versus a window, it's not so distinct that I'm like, I love this one, I hate this one. It's just like two very solid options and whichever is like closest to me at the time, if I'm craving a burger, is the one that's going to get chosen. Burgers never say die was very good too. Um, so I, I, I bet if if I laid out each one of these in front of me, I could be like, yes, ultimately this one's the best. The one I have fondest memories of is Heavy Handed during our famous LA crawl. And also that was fresh on site. And I also hadn't eaten in like 18 hours. So there's a lot of factors that go into that experience. I I don't know if I would be able to really say, have a a smash burger one Sunday and then go two weeks later to a different spot and go, this one's definitely better than that one. Because I find the experience to be so similar. Well, what you're describing is basically having the food memory of a goldfish. Like, because really, really what it is, is like, you're, you're describing like what I was going to say, okay, the solution to this is either you need to have them side by side, right? Like in order to yeah. be able to really tell which one is better, or you can just like think about what you're eating and try to remember it for the next time you have a smash burger. Well, to be fair, when I had like window and burgers never say die, it was usually in the context of it being like, you know midnight and i'm coming home from a night out and i'm just like stuffing something in my face it tastes <laughs> good at the time it's great but i'm not really thinking about the review the way i was for heavy-handed you know 
Yeah. Um, that being said, I, I do think, I feel like you've had this take before. Smash burgers are pretty like fungible kind of thing. Like there's not, I know there are differences. I don't want anyone to get too like all big and offended. Um, but it's a pretty like small margin between floor and ceiling of smash burgers. I said this actually last week on the pod because uh, Mona Holmes of Eater actually put out a great article saying that asking whether we've reached quote unquote peak smash burger and kind of <laughs> posing the question, are smash burgers over? And I, I reiterated my take last week that I think smash burgers are a scam and I explained why. <laughs> I, I don't agree with your take that there's a narrow margin. I, I, mm. I mean, it, there is in the context that like, yes, a burger has certain a certain number of elements to it, right? But within the context of each of those elements, there are a million different variables you can actually tweak in order to change the end product. Like there's quality of the meat, quality of the accoutrements, quality of the bun, and then there's how you treat all those things too. And I believe that when you take all those things into account, I think the infatuation's got it right that Goldberger is above those other two, in my opinion. I, I look you. You're you're both right and wrong. Like, look, you're right from the perspective of, that we should have on this podcast that every food is special and like there's there's <laughs> distinct differences. And and of course you are correct. But I still think at the end of the day, because of the way a smash burger is constructed, like you're gonna get a nice char on a burger. That's gonna add a certain like flavor every time. Each one is gonna probably have a special sauce. If it doesn't have a special sauce, sure it will be lacking. It may or may not have grilled onions or uh, pickles, right? All these things will change the experience, but I've found in my in my not not like limited experience with smash burgers. These are not the only ones I've had in my life. Like, if I'm having a smash burger, I know I'm in for a good time. That's like that's like the standard. And that's and where you go wrong. Like, that is where you <laughs> is go it, wrong. Is it though? I think it's because you're entering each one like like happy go lucky dumb motherfucker. That's why <laughs> I'm gonna like this no matter what. It's the only way to eat a burger. Happy go lucky dumb motherfucker is the only way to go into eating a burger. Everything else is a crime. I will say, um, Mona's take that Smash Burger, have you reached peak Smash Burger? I think is correct, by the way. Now, I don't think that means like, I think like as a fad or a trend, it's like hit its top. I'm sure we'll still see new ones, but I think for the most part, the good ones are here to stay and the ones that don't are going to fade out a bit. And I don't know if it's going to continue to like, you know, uh, grow the way it has over the past five years. Yeah, I'm sure it'll it'll like be completely waning by the time I finally do the burger countdown. We're right. to the point where like people are gonna be so turned off my videos, it's not even funny. <laughs> All right, that'll do. That'll do. We've uh, done the newsy bits for today. We'll be back right after the break to talk Changapalooza. Dear listener, if you're like me, then every time you turn on your TV, you're guaranteed to see David Chang's face advertising a new show. It genuinely feels like every week no matter the platform no matter what kind of mood you're in your algorithm is serving you up some sort of david chang or david chang related product because david chang is now very much a los angeles based chef and we've discussed him before on this podcast father saul and i thought it would be fun especially him being our uh, la food podcast television correspondent to do a segment analyzing all of chang's products but with a special, very critical eye towards his new show, Chrissy and Dave Dine Out. So, let me start here. What's your historical opinion slash relationship to David Chang and his products? So, I, I've, I've historically been a fan, generally. Um, the way, so I think, uh, the thing that I, I heard of Dave early on, I learned about him, I think, via Anthony Bourdain, who was, uh, I think, a, a, a 
champion for Dave as he was coming him? up via uh, Mind of the, Mind of the Chef and stuff like that. Um, there were kind of two big things though, and I'd heard of Momofuku, and I'd read a little bit of Lucky Peach, his magazine for a while. The two things that really established Dave for me though as like a, a legitimately like uh, high presence food culture personality guy was one the podcast series he did with Bill Simmons um, hmm. when he was opening Major Domo, which was really cool. Now Bill Simmons, like, well, we can like get a sports guy, whatever. But Dave came on and did like a series of four or five long podcasts as he was opening Major Domo, everything from making decisions about the side of the restaurant to the menu. You could hear Dave getting increasingly anxious. And it was just like, the coolest insight to how to open a restaurant, especially from like a very successful entrepreneur or restaurateur rather at the time. Um, and that, that was really cool. And I, and I, I learned a lot from that and liked Dave a lot. The other was Ugly Delicious, which I thought was one of the best new food shows and most interesting food shows that it came out at the time. Um, and, and really what defines Dave to me is, is a couple things. And we'll get into this as we dive into his current projects, but he's a guy with a lot of ideas hmm. and some of them are really great. And some of them just don't work. <laughs> and, and that's like the, that, and, but, the, but what I respect is that he's always trying. He's always pushing the envelope. Dave is not someone who it seems who really settles with the status quo. He's like pushing and pushing. I actually have his cookbook, Cooking at Home, here at home as well. I also am a patron of his Momofuku noodles, spicy soy noodle, very good. And his uh, flavored uh, seasoned salts, which I bought after we had the conversation about how much I hate flavored salts which i totally forgot because i was so like suckered by the marketing <laughs> and we like got them and i was like i don't like flavored salt what are we doing and i think we might throw those out but uh yes dave has like actually a larger presence in my life than i think i even realized <laughs> I-, I was gonna say based on the amount that you've just talked about it you are very much in the pocket of big dave right now i he, look he like the, his branding's very good <laughs> his, his product <laughs> some of his products are very good um, and, uh, when, when Dave tries something, I'm willing, I'm willing to try it. And of course we've been to major domo. I think the night of your engagement party, if I'm not mistaken, that was yeah. a special dinner. Yeah, no, I have a fond memory of that for me with David Chang. I think I've had like a 180, then a 180, then a 180 and now 180 sure. again. So where does that, does that leave us at 720 almost? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, um, just doing my math there. Well, basically, I first heard of him when he was just coming up on the restaurant scene, and uh, he had Momofuku and Noodle Bar in uh, in New York City, and he was sort of gaining this reputation for like being kind of like a against the grain kind of guy, right? Like, mm-hmm. yes, he was he was kind of an iconoclast. He was kind of doing things in a way that was unexpected, uh, doing very humble things, but in elevated manners. And um, I was very intrigued by him. Very, very intrigued. Then I finally went to one of his restaurants in New York City, Momofuku Nichi, which was like this Italian slash Korean fusion restaurant that he started. And I was like, what a perfect entryway into the David Chang universe for me as a young Italian boy, like to go try <laughs> his, his odes to my culture, right? And I left that experience just like absolutely hating it. I hated what? that restaurant. Yeah. Really? It was so I, – I, I don't know what it was, but like I remember going. Um, it must have been like 2015, 2016 or something like that. And um, the dish that was getting a bunch of like hype at the time was a cash of pepe, quote unquote, that he made with like fermented chickpeas, which sounds huh. interesting on its face, right? It's like trying to 
approximate the same flavor profile of cacio pepe, but using this like ingredient that's salty, but in a different way than than pecorino cheese is. Dude, I had that dish. I it was at a time when I was like a broke, like a broke young professional, and um, I think you know I spent like twenty plus dollars on this tiny pasta dish that was extremely underwhelming. Plus, I remember being underwhelmed by everything else on the menu in the worst kind of way, where it's like this is just really gimmicky and not delivering on mm-hmm. flavor. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's like all concept, no flavor, and no satisfaction. Yeah. And I just walked away from that, being like, dude, this guy, this guy is is a hoax basically you know this guy is like a scam to use my smash burger take however i think i did another 180 on him later down the line when he put out his shows and i started listening to his podcast and i even read his book and i felt like i got a good understanding of the kind of guy he is and to your point he seems like the kind of guy that yes is going to have a hundred different ideas 90 of them are going to be shit and 10 of them are going to be good and i just kind of resolved with okay that restaurant experience i had that must have just been one of his his bad restaurants, right? One of his bad ideas, right? And uh, you know, funnily enough, that restaurant did end up closing and reopening as a straight up Italian restaurant, and then closing again. Um, but then the other, you know, David Chang meals I've had, like our dinner at Major Domo, have been fantastic. I really, I really enjoyed our meal there. I think he makes great food there. I have to say though, recently, I feel like I've been doing a bit of one eighty again on him against. And oh, I think no. it's just based on it's based on the recent shows he's been putting out, and we'll get into interesting. Oh, we're yeah. gonna get into them. Yeah, I think I, I will say the other. That you reminded me of another kind of moment where I uh, found found uh, Dave Chang to be interesting, which is when the Nishi reviews came out, they were banned. Nishi was banned as like a bad mm-hmm. restaurant, right? And Dave talked about has been pretty open about how difficult psychologically the experience was for him and was kind of in the like in, in the vein of the article that we just read uh in, from the new york times which dave participated in was very like open about the real like experience of trying to putting your heart and soul to a restaurant and it failing and how bad the reviews hurt I, we should also note i think here also that dave in his early days in particular was pretty well known to be a real asshole in the kitchen uh, and he's he's recognized that and had talked about the work he's had to do but when we talk about kind of old uh, uh, standards of behavior in the kitchen. He was one of the, I think maybe one of the, um, the the most famous personalities that still embodied that when yeah. he was coming up of like a short temper. And like, he has had to talk about how all the work he's had to do to get past that. So, uh, and that's also continued to like crop up as he's gone, gone along here. Um, but that's one of the things that I actually respected about him. Like when I read that in his book, Mm-hmm. about how open he was about that sort of past toxicity and all the work he'd done to get over that. That that's one of those things that won me over because I think in this day and age like you you don't often get a chance to like correct your behavior or to recognize right. it and to like and to like say it yourself. And this isn't like some anti-cancel culture kind of thing. I just mean like it it takes self-awareness and not a lot of people have that skill. And I think he he demonstrated that really well. So that's something I actually appreciate about him. Yeah, no, no. Certainly, Dave is someone who uh, kind of walks the walk when it comes, I think, to accountability to some extent. I will say his partner, Peter Meehan, uh, at Lucky Peach, has also been accused of like some bad, like uh, toxic work environment. Peter featured prominently in Ugly Delicious. So there was certainly like this like initial bad culture that he came out of. I know uh, people question whether or not he should be fully forgiven for that. I think uh, he's been pretty honest and, and open, I think, about his shortcomings and we don't spend too much time on this, but I think it's also important to know as part of his overall sort of persona and, and how he came up. 
Yeah. No. Thanks for thanks for bringing it up. Thanks for being a Debbie Downer on the podcast. <laughs> um, look, he's got a lot of balls in the air right now, as we mentioned. He's got a podcast. He's got a restaurant. He's got multiple shows. But I think what would be most interesting today is to really dive into his show, Chrissy and Dave Dine Out. So, mm-hmm. Father Salt, can you give us the overall premise of the show for those who have not seen it? Yeah, I think it's relatively straightforward. Essentially, Chrissy Teigen, Joel Kim Booster, who's who's a comedian, and Dave basically go out to eat at a LA restaurant. Um, Chrissy and Joel host a couple of famous guests for dinner, while Dave goes into the kitchen and basically talks to, interviews the chefs, learns about the, their process for making the dinner, and then comes out and Dave basically splits his time between the table and kitchen. So it's kind of a mix of like a hangout show slash almost like a almost like a podcasty vibe in a way, like, like like a casual conversation between some famous people who, uh, you know, presumably they you want to hang out with. And then Dave teaching you about food along the way. Um, yeah. 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 And critically all five episodes of the season, which is now streaming on Hulu, um, are in Los Angeles. They're all at Los Angeles restaurants. So, yeah. uh, to break it down real quick for, for folks, episode one, they were at pizzeria Bianco and the guests were Jimmy Kimmel and his wife, Molly McNerney. Episode two, they went to, uh, La Casita Mexicana and Bell and the guests were John Legend. There was Camille Nanjani and Emily Gordon. Um, and then, uh, Dave Chang also brought his wife, Grace Chang. Episode three, they went to uh, Yangban in the Arts District, and they it was an assortment of like family folks. Like one of the chefs, uh, the chef's brother is a famous actor who was on Veep, so he was there. Um, <laughs> episode four, they went to Providence with Simu Liu and Regina Hall, and episode five, they went to Meals with Gannett with a few different actors, and then finally they went to Major Domo, Dave's restaurant with Alessandro Daddario, Randall Park, and Randall Park. So. That is the gamut. Now, let's get straight to it, Saul. Did you like this show? Um, so I really liked the concept for this show, and I really liked a couple of the episodes. Um, no, so I, as like a show, I hope this gets renewed, and I hope they do more episodes. I, I really enjoyed it. Wow, you're shaking your head. I think it's like the ideal sort of setup for – well, not, not I shouldn't say ideal. There's so many food shows out there. But I thought it was a, as a fundamental, a really good concept, and one that I really enjoyed – the, the key thing for the show to be successful is that the people who hang have to actually be good hangs. And uh, Joel Kimbooster is someone that, that I thought did a nice job on the show. Uh, Chrissy was a tougher hang for me, I'm going to be honest. Horrible. Uh, Horrible. <laughs> a little bit tougher. Um, but when the guests were really good, when Jimmy Kimmel and his wife came through and then Kamel and Emily and John Legend came through in particular, um, I thought those were really fun episodes i actually really really enjoyed those the first two of the of the season and i was really hooked by them because what's fun is that the conversation at the table isn't necessarily about food it's about you know uh, like funny stories and relationship stories and blah 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 you're learning more about people and again it really matters that one they're cool and two you care about them a little bit and it just yeah. so happens that you know like we're kind of there i will say in the following episodes there was it was pretty hit and miss the other thing is the the chefs who are at the restaurants are also real personalities here I thought it was really cool to hear from Bianco. I thought it was really, I mean, uh, Jeanette is awesome. <laughs> like in, in the Meals in Meals by Jeanette episode, she's such a great personality, even though I think that was a particularly cursed table of people. Um, but no, the actual concept of the show I thought was strong. And I would just want to see it. One, uh, when Dave's doing Dinner Time Live on Netflix, which I don't, don't think we're going to talk about in detail, one of the Dinner Time Lives, which by the way, that to me is a real, that to me is like a 
swing and a miss show. That one does That's not work cancel at all. It, cancel it yesterday. That one. Cancel I, it yesterday. It's, it's just it's painful to watch. Dave doesn't quite have that personality. But they had John Mulaney and Nick Kroll on for an episode of this like awkward live TV show. I'm like, yo, bring John and Nick to, to like dinner with Chrissy and Dave. That's the yeah. perfect environment for those guys and take some of these randos out of here who are like really kind of annoying, typical Hollywood personalities. So long story short, I like the show. I want to see more of it. They just have to sharpen some of the guest list. I mean, okay. I think that's a great point. The guest list is so critical in a show like this. And I think you kind of nailed it in your tee up of the concept where I think part of this was designed to feel like a podcast, right? It's designed to feel like what's great about a podcast, right? I mean, for the most part, you're listening to a podcast either to glean something new or learn something, right? Or mm -hmm. to hang out with people hang. that you think you would like to hang out with, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it, we've talked a lot about parasocial relationships. My 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 wife makes fun of me all the time because I feel like I say parasocial like eight times a day. But um, <laughs> the problem I had with this show is that it, it tried to approximate that feeling but it did it in such a watered down way that it was basically mm -hmm. like an imitation of what it feels like to, to listen to a podcast. Like the conversations are so spliced up, right? That you're basically just getting like, you know, sound bites and, and snippets of conversations. You're parachuting in and out and you never fully get to like sink into a conversation. Even the better episodes, and I agree with you, I think the Jimmy Kimmel one was the best one. And I have mm -hmm. a theory as to why. But even that one, I felt like I, it left me wanting more, not in a good way, because I'm never going to get more. Meaning like I'm, it's not like a teaser where there's an option to get more. I'm never going to be at that dinner. I'm never going to be like in that setting. I'm always going to wonder what was set. You know, like it, it's basically, it just feels yeah. like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like this is some New York Times level analysis, okay? Uh, I, that's what I really, what really left me wanting from the show. And I felt like I was never getting it. And, and definitely as the guests got less interesting, uh, that was like games gone, you know, like yeah, there's yeah. no way this is going to be a good watch. I mean, especially that meals by Gannett episode you just mentioned a real shame because Gannett herself was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's my other criticism of the show is that there's a very uneven like level of, um, sort of participation that the chefs get. Some chefs got a ton of participation, like Chris Bianco, whereas the other chefs, like uh, Michael Chimarusti of Providence, did not get so much. It was very, it wasn't so much about him and his backstory. I know that that's difficult. I know that it's personality based, but I think what it does is it creates this environment where every single episode is talking about to entertainment people about their entertainment bullshit, and it's like <laughs> it, I can only take so much of that, you know. So I, I, it's funny. Yeah, uh, your your slightly unhinged uh, desire to hear every part of the con uh, of the dinner conversation, notwithstanding, I, I think I, I didn't have a problem with that in the slightest because you're getting the like, essentially what it, I said podcast in the highlights, right? You're getting the best clips, and what that requires is for there to be good clips, which is helped along when there are like cool and funny people at the dinner, right? So like I, I did not feel like feel left wanting when like the Camille and Emily conversation or needing to hear more. Um, I just, but I, I just enjoyed the clips. I was like, these are the funniest clips from this conversation. And one thing, one thing that might be true also is critical for me is I'm getting to know restaurants in LA that I haven't been to yet. Yang Ben is on my list and I can't wait to check it out. And it's really cool. And Bianco, Pizzeria Bianco, I've not been to yet. And I really want to check it out. Is that um, why we're so, going? 
Uh, kind of. Yeah, actually, actually, kind of. Yeah, I think we. Like, I I wanted to go, but that episode, watching it, like, uh, I was like, dude, let's just go. That looks so good. Actually, I think you're 100 percent right. I saw the menu. I saw the food coming out. I saw Bianco and Dave explaining it, and I was like, I want to eat that. And yeah, now we've got reservations at Pizzeria Bianco next time I come down to LA. Um, and certainly Yangban is on my uh, list for when my sister comes and visits, and we do a little uh, birthday trip for her in August. So. Um, that's cool. I enjoyed that. And, and yeah, no, but, but I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised that you don't agree that if the guests, as long as the guests hit, right. The Camille no. and Emily, like funny stories and the, the Jimmy Kimmel and his wife, and you're learning like things about them and you're getting the best clips of the conversation. You're getting a sense of the menu at this place and the thoughts of the chef. Yeah. I thought that makes like worked really well for me. I think the other piece of this is that, you know, I think it was also a tough watch for people from Los Angeles. And I've actually heard sure. this from other folks from Los Angeles. Gotcha. And that is he's going to fo- places that are extremely well-known in Los Angeles. He's not sure. going to spots that are under the radar at all. Like Young Bon has been on every list. La Casita Mexicana was on like Jonathan Gold's 101 list before I could walk. Like, you know, like it's literally been around and in the scene that long and he's going there and basically like it felt like these lists were like new york people are telling us are telling us what's good in los angeles you know and it's like they don't really they don't really know and for example the way he teed up la casita mexicana he literally was like saying stuff like you've probably never heard of this or like you'd be so surprised to find this kind of a caliber restaurant in an industrial city and it just felt so like treating los angeles like epcot and I real that really rubbed no, me the wrong I, way. I, that really so rubbed this, me the wrong way. So this is interesting. This is like a key because remember, this is on Netflix. The audience is global, right? Like me, I I had not heard of La Casita Mexicana, right? Mexicana. I mean, like I had not. So so for me, from outside of LA, sure, you don't want your city presented in like its most Epcot version. But I don't think I think they did a decent job mixing up like old and new, small, like fine dining and casual. I mean, so lazy. It was so lazy. No, dude. Literally, I, no, no, no. literally. Okay. Let me tell you what, why I think even the first episode, the pizzeria Bianco one was the best one. It's because those guys are all homies. Friends. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're no. all friends. Yeah. It was the easiest one to set up. Pizzeria Bianco there. It's literally right next door to the major Domo offices in the sa- at the row in the same exact place. He just did it. They're friends. He goes there all the time. Showed up. Right. The reason it was good is because they have the best chemistry, and that's what you want on a pod in a podcast setting, which this show tries to approximate. But Jimmy Kimmel also, they're all super close homies, right? So mm-hmm. that's why that one felt the best. But it was also a lazy choice. Like no disrespect to Pizzeria I, Bianco. I don't. I, 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 this, I think I fundamentally disagree. Like it's a proof. It's episode one. It's proof of concept, right? The whole season, five episodes. It, it felt. I will say, it felt like a proof of concept season. A little bit, right? They could have easily put the show out for twelve episodes or, or ten. Netflix's favorite episode number, right off the bat. Uh, or sorry, Hulu. Sorry, Hulu. Hulu. I, I, I mixed up my Dave shows. It's on Hulu. It's still a broader audience than LA, right? It still is for people outside the city, and I think they still did choose restaurants that people outside the city went. Hey, I want to try Pizzeria Bianco. That sounds fucking dope. I had no idea. I mean, I did have an idea, but others were. I have no idea. This like nationally renowned. Uh, uh, Pizzaiolo has opened a place in LA. So I think it functions on that level pretty well. And then the rest of it to me, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, the season felt to me like a, let's try these different options. Let's try these mix of guests, right? Let's try this mix of editing. Let's see how much Dave should be in the kitchen or not. 
they, they went to major domo of all places right like you talk about lazy like they went to like the actual day restaurant which felt appropriate as one of the as given he's one of the hosts of the show right and i do i like i'm guessing you'd want to see his home base what's his authority and you see his restaurant i i i, I don't i think i disagree with you from an out la outsider's perspective Fair. on the and, choices and- there and we'll talk about how we could improve this show. And I actually, you're, I think you can already anticipate what one of my uh, like suggestions <laughs> is going to be. But let's let's shift over to some of the more universal aspects, then, right? Which is the, yeah. the hosts. Okay, what do you think of them and, and and the sort of their ability to carry a show like this, which is so contingent upon how much you like the host, Dave, yeah. Chris, and Joel. Yeah. Uh, so. Joel, I like, like I said already, I think Joel brings like the exact right fun energy. Dave is funny because Dave is like, and the part of the reason why dinner time live with Dave work is Dave is socially awkward, man. Like Dave has a podcast. I understand that. Like Dave is not actually a great hang. <laughs> like there's like, he's, he's, but he, he, he works, right. He works in the show um, because he's bouncing off the other personalities. But it's just a funny thing I, that I find where Dave is like kind of like an awkward dude. I find um, interacting as like a TV host. Man, Chrissy Teigen, I understand she's like on the title of the show. I understand that her presence, I I guess she even still a big deal. Like, I guess we'll bring in other people, right? Like, in a sense, this is not just a Dave show. It's called Chrissy and Dave Go to Dinner. So I'm yeah. guessing part of the reason why they're starting so 101 with LA is because they're expecting 101 people from the Chrissy audience. Um, and she's pregnant, I think. So I think it was probably just oh. easier for her to just be in LA. But sure, to, to sure, your point, but... dude, I I think part of this was a little bit of a Chrissy Teigen rehabilitation tour. I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure if you followed, but like she was probably one of the most like well-loved celebrities. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. Like... I was on Twitter in the mid 2010s. Yeah. yeah. So she was like hilarious, doing amazing things. Like everybody loved her. But have, did you follow her whole bullying scandal? There was a bullying scandal. There was a, and she using like a, what, are they, what is it called? Someone else is carrying their child. Is that? A, Surrogate. I I, I, Surrogate, sur- yeah. yeah. Sur- I saw that. I saw, I saw that. Yeah. Even though I, she's I also mean, pregnant the herself. Bullying, to me, the bullying scandal is what kind of mostly like made her kind of go off the grid a little bit because she was, you know, these horrible tweets resurfaced of her like saying some vile shit to people um, on mm. the internet, like telling oh, them to see, go I kill see. themselves and stuff like Whoa. that. When she's been kind of very vocal about the bullying she's received in the past and, and, and kind of was a bit of a, like, I want to say like ambassador for positive behavior on the internet, like kind of like, mm. like, like doing, like trolling the right way, if you will, uh, when you get trolled. Right, right, right. But, um, so she kind of went off the grid and I've got to say her, this has been kind of her, one of her biggest forays back into society since all that. And I, to me, like. That's tough, man. It's tough when you're trying to ride off the coattails of your personality and your personality right now is kind of in question to begin with. Plus, I think, you know, frankly, she had a little bit of an opportunity to, to show us what she got. And I don't think she added a whole lot to the to the conversation. And, and, and that's not to say, like, you have to be good at speaking about food to be on a food show, right? Mm-hmm. Because I thought Joel Kim Booster was pretty horrible at, at talking about food. Like his descriptions were like, this is good. This is so good. Like literally he, he just resorted to like saying the word mouthfeel and laughing, right? Which is like, you know. <laughs> All you need. All you, but he was a good hang. That was what mattered. But he was a Joel, good right? hang. But he was yeah, a good yeah. hang. You don't need to be good at talking about food. But she brought neither. She brought neither the food nor the good hang. So 
you're right. It's tough because she's in the title. But uh, if it could be Dave and Dave and Joel dine out, I think I'd be more likely to watch. <laughs> yeah, I, and look, and hope look. If, early in a show, there's always learning, right? Hope, like maybe the dynamic or the feedback or whatever. Like the thing, what, what I found as we went along, actually by the end, even at the very beginning, she was very grating. When we watched them, like the last episode, we were like, she's fine, she's fine. Maybe it's just like a, a Stockholm syndrome where you just adapt to the tone. But it was like at the, at the end, I was like. It's all right. And I think they were spending more time on the guests anyway. And they kind of like, I think they put more on Chrissy early on as, of course, establishing her as one of the faces of the show. Um, so there's ways around it, maybe. But yeah, no, like, look, at the end of the day, would it be better with another host? In my opinion, yes. All right. Well, let's, let's go down that route a little bit. What would you do to improve this overall show in season two? I mean, again, guest list, update, and then I'm trying to think of who I might replace a Chrissy with the thing is this I do think uh the marriage between entertainment and and cooking works right so having Dave representing the culinary industry <laughs> having having uh the other host be representing the entertainment industry I think that marriage uh is is like like an Eric Wareheim right and I we don't don't want to make like I don't know it'll be a bunch of dudes doing the show but like someone like that like uh who has like familiar with food, with food from a celebrity perspective which to be fair Chrissy does uh, to somehow she's written a cookbook or whatever, but everybody's like, written a cookbook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, look, almost like Padma Lakshmi would almost be the best, like not to like, yeah. like, lean on an old standby. She'd be like the best, right. She'd be the best yeah. in that role. Right. Um, and so that, that's one thing. And then I think this is the guest list. I don't know how they pulled it together. Maybe like not everyone was willing to say yes just yet. But where was Roy Choi? Right. Get Roy Choi in here, right? Get, the, get, get some other chefs at dinner as well yeah, as just yeah. like um, uh, entertainment folks and and diversity with like the diversity in terms of like the kind of people coming into the conversation. So you're not just listening to a couple like C-list actors. I'm sorry, like talk well, about their careers. To that point, I think my biggest so my biggest two recommendations to improve the show are one go to different cities. Like I know that this was probably proof of concept and stuff like that, but just go check out a, a more diverse array of spots, preferably around the country or, or, or just like, I don't know, do a little bit more homework in terms of like where you're going, because I, I genuinely think I, why, I'm so, why are you so mad about that? Like Yangban is a relatively, I mean, I only heard start hearing about Yangban in like the last year. Sounds really cool. I like Bianco is only in the last year. This is not like, like no, meals by Jeanette, like having putting Providence, putting them putting no, 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 but, so obvious. no, no, but hold hold on, hold on. Of it's obvious in the sense that it's always top on the list. I don't what's interesting is that when I saw Providence there, I was like, you know, I know Providence is always top ranked, but you don't see it on TV shows. Not that I've seen. Like Bourdain didn't go to Providence, right? Like I don't see like other other LA TV shows don't go to Providence. So I actually thought it was interesting, an interesting choice to mix in with the other restaurants. That were on the list. You go to Jeanette, you go to Bianco, you go to Yanban, you go to Providence. That's actually an interesting mix of folks, La Casita, uh, uh, and and you're still putting uh, getting people into the door onto a table at Providence where many people, even in LA, wouldn't often have a chance to go, which I think is kind of interesting. I just think it comes down to. If you're going to a city, there's always going to be people in that city who are disappointed with your choices. Sure, 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 so sure. Yeah, yeah. Safe, like just save yourself and diversify cities. I think that's an easy thing to do. Now, yeah, yeah, the other yeah. thing I'll say is like I think it'd be more interesting with a diverse set of group group of 
people at the table. Making mm-hmm. it all entertainment leads to the yeah. same fucking conversation every yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Which restaurant did you wait at before you made you got your big break? Did what would yeah. you be doing if you didn't get your big break? Like that whole yeah. thing. Let's get some interesting folks across like sports. Get some, I don't know, get some fucking politicians on there. Like just make it interesting. Like like yeah. like we all when you when you think about like your your ideal dinner party when you're, you're like that that party of like who could you invite if you can invite anyone. You're not yeah. saying like five people from the entertainment industry. And my yeah. God, if you are, you're not someone I want to hang out with personally, you know? <laughs> so to me, it's like just diversify. But what do you think the ceiling for Dave Chang is as America's food personality? Because I genuinely think he's trying to position himself as let's see how far I can take this thing. Well, I, so I don't, I, I don't know how to rank ceiling, but I do think it's limited, Right. And I also think Dave himself is more interested in trying interesting ideas. You don't forget Secret Chef, man. Secret Chef was a Dave Chang special as well. Horrible. You thought horrible. I thought kind of entertaining, but yes, not not a good not a good food competition show. But I think I think Dave is less like he's going to be the face of food. I mean, look, he is in a lot of ways. As we're learning from my own like my food interactions or whatever, but. What limits Dave is, like I said, I don't think he has quite the person ability to be like a, you know, a Bourdain, really, right? Like he he is too like a little too neuro- neurotic, honestly, and a little bit awkward to be like that every in everyone's home, making them feel welcome. So, I, but what he what he will do that's interesting. Like like again, I'll, ugly delicious, and and those unique concepts and those looking in places like flipping ideas on their head mm-hmm. or, or trying out new stuff like this, whatever the criticisms are. Is not is like food show that I can't super like it borrows from a couple different things, but nothing's quite been executed like this. Like Tucci's thing to Italy had elements of this show, right? But not quite packaged like this. Secret Chef was completely out of the box. Dinner Live is like a huge risk, right? So Dave will continue, I think, to take big risks and just like they always go. He said it. He said it literally on the last episode yeah. of the show. Uh, Ten ideas, nine of them will suck, one of them will be great. I think his hit rate is a little bit higher than that. Credit to him, but. Yeah, he'll have like some that really suck, but he won't. I don't think he'll be like the face. I don't think he'll be like, I don't know if he can really break through entirely to like a A list, a plus list fame because he doesn't quite have the persona for it. I'm not going to say anything on this topic because did you see the recent thing about like, um, Iowa to Beery talking about J Lo and then uh, them having yeah. to work together. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's too late, man. <laughs> I was going to say, in the unlikely event that uh, Major Double Media ever has any interest in purchasing this podcast, um, I'm not going to say anything bad about Dave. So uh, I guess, yeah, uh, you literally already did, though. <laughs> no, I just I Max Shapiro his content. I gave him constructive criticism. <laughs> Love it, man. All right, bro, dude. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again in a couple weeks for Fantasy Top Chef. Cannot wait. Defending right, get champ. Ready. Coming get home. ready. Get ready for a beating. <laughs> Take care, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to Father Saul, as always, for making the time to join us. If you like what you heard today, dear listener, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, review, subscribe. Seriously, it all helps us make our way up the charts on Apple, Spotify, and all of the other podcast apps. We'll be back next week with another epic episode. But in the meantime, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and threads at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E-L-A-C. 
C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at the LA Countdown. And you can also find us on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.